We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome back to The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. We're here again at the Los Angeles People's Summit for Democracy. We're joined by Tings Chak from Dungsheng News. Welcome. Thanks, Brian. Glad to finally meet you in person. We're meeting in person. I interviewed you a few weeks ago, and that was part of the real story episode of The Socialist Program, and we talked about many things. But what I want to talk to you, many things about China, Sorry. what I want to talk to you about today is the project that you're working on, Dengsheng News. I read it every week. There's actually two different newsletters that come out. One is called China Voices and then perhaps China News. And then there's some other sub-variants of Dengsheng News about Africa and so on. Let's just talk about what it is. How did it get started? Sure. I mean, we started uh, in May of 2020. And so just like taking us back a little bit in that moment, that was more or less the time that Wuhan was coming out of the pandemic. The pandemic was only really beginning in the world. And uh, a few of us who were avid news readers, who are interested in geopolitics, but interested in a question of China, but we couldn't find out any kind of good information because we were you know, witnessing what was happening in the early pandemic period. and the increasing anti-China narrative that was you happening. Were, you were inside China. I was inside China at the moment. And then so we got together a group of people, um, mostly from the global south, who were just researchers interested in reading, trying to say, wow, we can't even get the news, even from uh, you know, uh, a progressive person, whether or not you're linked to a social movement or something. If you want to know about China, probably you'll see the lines coming from Washington, D.C., from London, from New York, but very few perspectives, particularly from the Global South perspective. So a few of us researchers started gathering news and summarizing them and putting them into what we call the News on China weekly bulletin. And so since then, we just two weeks ago launched our 100th issue. And I think for us, the COVID moment was pretty important. When the Wuhan outbreak came out, you know, we saw a lot of disinformation, particularly in the media. You know, we were hearing you know, former President Trump talking about the Kung flu, you know, the Wuhan, the Chinese virus. And that moment actually defined us to say, oh, wow, there's something happening here in the media space since I think the pivot to Asia in the Obama period. But the media really took advantage and kind of rode that bandwagon of anti-China narrative that really increased during the pandemic moment. One of the things that I think is most important about the newsletter is that it actually provides concrete information. It doesn't have a lot of rhetoric, doesn't appear to be Chinese state media, but it provides valuable facts and information. I rely on it for my show. Again, we're always desperate to get real independent sources, and so that's why I wanted to talk to you about it and also to recommend it to people watching this show. One of the things that's happening, of course, is the United States reoriented its military doctrine in 2018 preparing for major power conflict. That means, first and foremost, conflict with China. We have a proxy war going on between the U.S. and Russia and Ukraine right now. But you're in China, or you're visiting China, staying at least temporarily in China. 
As a consequence of this change in foreign policy or military doctrine, everybody in the United States is now aware of China. I mean, really aware of it. They're aware that China's a great menace. They're aware that China's a great threat. They're aware that they should be afraid of China. But they don't actually know anything about China. I mean, that's why I find the newsletter so important. Um, I think that's an important, exactly the point of why we started the project, to try to bridge the gap I like that you mentioned that it's not something really highly rhetorical. It's not even actually deeply analytical in the sense that we just wanted to bring some facts, you know. So if you look at a newsletter, we don't look just at geopolitics, but it could be national politics to follow some of the policies that have been happening. For example, what is the anti-monopoly policies that we've been seeing in the last couple of years, particularly against big tech, against a lot of these, you know, data platforms looking at you know, anti-corruption struggles in China, looking at the poverty campaign. I mean, during the pandemic period, China successfully eradicated extreme poverty in a country of nearly 1.5 billion people. And we had a chance to talk about that last time. So some of the key national policies that actually are of great interest to anyone who's interested in human rights or democracy, let's say, in terms of what is good for the people. And that, I think, it's, it does a great disservice to many of us to not be able to access that kind of information or have it to wade through the heavy amounts of media misinformation that's happening. But then we also cover other areas like agriculture and environment because there have been great advances around, let's say, the climate crisis or around green energy or around the mechanization in the agricultural field that is actually interested. If you're a scientific person that wants to know, you know some of the technological advancements, we try to look at that too. And then for me, and especially a part that I, I care a lot about is the section about people's life and culture. I think in the media landscape, particularly in the West, there's a kind of dehumanization of Chinese people as if, you know, everyone's sort of a a kind of blind mass, you know. There's very few stories actually about, you know, how people live, how people relate to each other, what is the society like, what are some of the values, how are there interesting things, but as well as challenges for, you know, working people, everyday people. And so we're trying to also bridge that gap to bring some stories about Chinese people and Chinese society. Well, one of the things about any war or pre-war is war propaganda, and a big part of war propaganda is caricaturing or stereotyping the enemy. And so as a consequence, the people who are reading the information, watching the information, which is propaganda, they have a caricatured, stereotyped view of China. For instance, people would think there's no dissent in China, there's no opportunity to express opposition to the government, there's no lively debate in the media. And again, they just don't know. I mean, I think if we went out and went in neighborhoods close to where we are and asked people, What's it like? Do Chinese people have the right to speak up and speak out? People would say, no, it's not like the United States where we can have a demonstration or organize a people's summit for democracy. Anyway, just talk about, and again, this is why we need to have Deng Cheng News because this is not true, but let's just talk about how that sort of flowering of public discussion, public debate, how does it manifest? I mean, I think that's actually leads to the kind of second project that you mentioned called Chinese Voices that is a bit of a, a newer, also weekly digest. But that is particularly looking at some of the public debate, as you said, you know, of, you know, the influencers or public intellectuals, scholars. It's not just academic work, but just to bring actually these, some of the Chinese voices, just as the name is, and summarize them, translate some of the key points. 
even whether or not you know we might agree with it's not necessarily our editorial line to editorialize what people are saying but just to bring exactly that point that there's a huge amount of debate like in any society that imagine there's a kind of condescension I would say around this thinking that a country of 1.4 billion people can be just censored massively in an easy way. I mean, there are 1.4 billion unique individuals who have their own views about the world and it manifests like any other society. It might not show on Twitters or on Facebook or you know the Western platforms because there's actually a vibrant um, social media platforms like Weibo, like WeChat that Chinese people debate on and discuss and talk about the topics of the day and that matter to Chinese people. So that's a kind of humble project to try to bring some of those ideas just to kind of demystify the idea that maybe 1.4 billion people don't have their own ideas or don't have their forms of expression. Of course, it looks differently. China is a socialist society, and it's in the process of socialist construction. So in terms of what is the purpose of, or the role of mass demonstration, or the role of social movements is different in a socialist society. And this is, I think, evident in the fact that even the studies we've seen from Harvard that was looking for, I think, 2003 to 2016, looking at the way the party was linking and the, to the common people, and what they've seen is there's a huge amount of trust in the government, a huge amount of trust in the party. They actually ranked that at something about 93% of public trust in the central government. And that's been increasing. And how is that? You know, it's because there have been some delivery of meeting some of the needs of the people. And I think, for example, the poverty is the, one of the greatest stories of humanity. And it's a travesty, actually, that we don't get to hear about it in the media. You know, at most, it's a at what costs, you know. You know, at, at most, it's a, oh, this is an authoritarian measure to look at rural poverty and, uh, and try to resolve well, that, that. That was a commonplace, the whole presentation, when Wuhan was locked down just before your publication began in 2020. It was presented as a terrible nightmare, uh, terrible authoritarian, so almost fascistic action on the part of the central government of China. Of course... Wuhan is, a, I think, a city of 12 million. Hubei province is probably 70 million. So that's a lot of people locked down. And it went on for maybe two and a half months before it suddenly ended because it was actually effective at containing COVID. While COVID was spreading throughout the United States and killing so many people in the United States, China actually had done something effective. It wasn't a patchwork. It wasn't like Wuhan did this and you know, some other city could do that. It was a coordinated approach to whatever the, the problem was. But it was presented as a terrible totalitarian nightmare. Now you're living in Shanghai. Shanghai has just gone through another lockdown. It must have been very trying, but Shanghai is opening up again. So in other words, it was terrible, hard. How did people survive? And it seems to have worked again. So, I mean, I think, and I just actually came out of two months in the Shanghai lockdown, absolutely many, many difficulties. And, and I think one of the things, it's interesting to look at this in the two-year period, is that when the virus broke out in Wuhan, this was a never-before-known never virus. It was right. unknown right. to the world, you know. In some ways that it was controlled in two and a half months, but in some ways many mistakes were made, much learning has been done. But it was also a process of trying to buy time for the rest of the world to try to get to grips out of it. Same thing right now with the zero COVID policy. It's never been done before. 
Have there been mistakes? Have there been adjustments? Have they changed? And we've seen different cities actually handle lockdowns differently and try different policies differently. Because the thing is, yes, there's a central government and a central policy, but the actual implementation is quite decentralized. Each city actually has their own government and ways. And in some ways, you can say that Shanghai even made some their own mistakes of being slow to react or some of the organizational questions. But we see that Beijing actually came out of lockdown much quicker or Shenzhen even quicker still. So there is also lessons and learnings and China's not a one massive it unit. A, it has a federal policy of zero COVID. Absolutely. But the implementation, obviously a country that big, the cities that big, the provinces that big, the federal government can't be this little tiny group up here pulling all those strings. I think it's the same kind of, you know, um, thinking of, you know, there is no public debate, you know, 1.4 billion people just follow the will of, you know, uh, one central leader. Of course, that can't be the case, you know. It's a very complex society. It is huge society to scale that I don't think many of us have, you know, appreciation of the dimension of. But I think one of the things is zero COVID, you know, it seems draconian in the way that it's presented in the media, but what is, a, I guess, a one million death policy we've seen in the United States or in many of the other countries? I mean, many studies have come out now to say if China had performed as well as the West, there would be about 300 million infections and up to 4 million deaths. I mean, that is a cost that, of course, the Chinese government was not going to take. You know, we're sitting around 5,000 deaths in two years as the first country that actually approached an unknown virus, never before known in history. So were there measures that were harsh in some ways? Yes, of course, but what was the end goal? Was the end goal just to be draconian, just to be authoritarian, or is it to save human lives? So the Nature Journal came out last month with another uh, study to just you know, bring to light this question of, okay, zero COVID in the face of Omicron, because the recent waves has been around Omicron, which is, spreads very fast, and it has, in some of the previous measures, weren't as effective in combating. So if, for example, China today were to just say, let's end with zero COVID, at the current uh, vaccination rates, looking at the elderly, looking at the healthcare system, it would be 1.5 million people dead in two months. That's what Nature Journal came out with. That is absolutely not a number. I think anyone, not just the Chinese government, but anyone who cares about humanity or human rights or democracy yeah, would the, accept. The interesting part of that is if it's all about branding in a way. The U.S. says, oh, it's so ridiculous to have zero COVID. But if you called it, as you were suggesting, and we said, well, China's adopted a 1.5 million death policy, people in the United States would say, wow, China's agreed that 1.5 million people will die. But actually, through epidemiological studies and other research, you can kind of predict what the death rate will be for especially unvaccinated people who have comorbidities. One of those comorbidities being if you're elderly. If you're elderly, Absolutely. if you're not vac vaccinated, you're obviously more vulnerable. So again, so much is about the labeling. And the media in the United States was, you could see that every obstacle that China faced, it was kind of something to celebrate in the US media. It was kind of like you could see them rubbing their hands and saying, oh, look, China's got some additional problems. Or, if there's any discontent, if you lock down a city of 12 million, some people are obviously going to be unhappy, like no matter what, no matter what the government says. So it was like the U.S. was just ready to pounce on any description of any vulnerability. You know, this is kind of the, the reporting with malice, where I'm wondering how does the Chinese media, the Chinese media that Chinese people are listening to, not necessarily English language Chinese media, 
how is China covering, say, COVID in other parts of the world? What's the, what's the tone of the media? I mean, I think on the whole, there is a general support of the zero COVID policy seeing the reporting around the rest of the world and some of the travesties, you know. Brazil is the country I lived in and my partner is from Brazil. I mean, that's another country where we've seen 600,000 people die. You know, here we talked about the million people. We mean, the amount of death and travesty and the deepening of existing economic, social crises that the pandemic brought on is something that I think people generally in China are proud to see, that there's a defense of human life. Are there lots of complaints course, again, country of 1.4 billion. But on the whole, I think that there is no question around, you know, kind of a general popular question around zero COVID or the necessity to protect human life. Is there some, you know, fatigue around the closure of borders? Is there fears, especially around the elderly? Of course. So right now, I think one of the big priorities is the vaccination of the elderly. In cities like Beijing or Shanghai, where I live, the elderly vaccination rates are quite low, you know. Only is there vaccine hesitancy among older people? Is there that is, a- and there's various factors around that. There's a lot of also, I think, like a cultural reticence, especially around elders to say, oh, there's other complications and um, worries about what, what that would do. It's not a kind of anti-vaccine. It's just more like worries about existing. The way people would worry. Exactly. At the same time, remember two during the two years, which is the time I moved back to China, COVID wasn't a real daily fear or problem. So there wasn't a huge, you know, incentive in some ways or necessity to, oh, let's get our vaccines. And it wasn't a mandatory program in that sense. So there was also, you know, a slowness that I think the government is also seeing now. They're trying to amp up that vaccination. At the same time, test test the mass testing technique to see how, you know, can lower the prices and increase the production of, vac- of, of mass testing. Um, to make it, you know, especially in Shanghai now, they're trying to institute that you have to have a show a PCR test within 72 hours to enter some, you know, buildings and some, you know, maybe public institutions or workplaces, etc. It's a highly, I think, scientific country that tests policy, revises it, tests again, and we've seen that consistently with the COVID policy. Well, it's changed a lot, actually, in the last two one, years. One of the things, one of the really important statistics I read, and I only read it in Dongsheng News, was about the extent of the testing, of the PCR testing. Let's just talk about the number of tests and what the Chinese government actually spent to finance that. Yeah, so one of the things is, I mean, aside from some traveling to go from one city or another where I paid maybe at most five to six dollars for a PCR test, all the PCR testing I've done has been government paid. And since the beginning of the pandemic, there's been 11.5 billion tests conducted at a cost of about $45.1 billion. These are PCR tests? PCR tests. I mean, during the lockdown, I was getting pretty much daily or you know every two days testing organized by the local government, organized in the neighborhood communities. And basically, it was I step out of my, my building, go to the local schoolyard that they were organized uh, in. And in Shanghai, there's about 10,000 sites of, like this that was organized. And that was all kind of centralized into a system. So. That's mass testing is a huge cost. Yeah. In other words, what the Chinese government spent testing its people with these 11 billion PCR tests is the amount the U.S. is sending to Ukraine. By the way, it's not actually going to Ukraine. Only 700 million of the 40 billion goes to Ukraine. All the rest of it goes to U.S. military war contractors. Amazing. It's like just a big subsidy for the military. war economy. Yeah, for the military industrial complex. I want to go back again because 
even though we're talking about a number of topics, mm -hmm. it's about information, the information blockade, mm -hmm. the fact that American people are being told, China's your enemy, hate it, fear it, get ready to go to war with it, but don't actually think you're going to learn anything about China, which is, from my point of view, why people should be reading Deng Xiaoping's newsletter. And I just wonder, like, what's the reciprocity here? Do the Chinese, Americans don't really understand China, know much about China. Do the Chinese people know about the United States? Like, I think it's an important thing to think about. Back in the so-called Cold War in the 1970s, I was part of a team of people who did a survey or were using a survey, and Americans were asked, name a Russian author. And without exception, they all named Solzhenitsyn because he was the yeah. most famous dissident. And they knew no other Soviet authors, even though Soviet and Russian literature was so famous. And then you ask Soviet people about American authors, and they knew like 10. You know, these are like average Russians or Soviet people knew about the American society. What about China? Do Chinese people know much about the United States? You know, I think that's a fascinating question because especially since the opening up of reform period and starting in the 80s, we've had, I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, and there's actually an interesting white paper the government just launched um, a couple months ago uh, for the 100th anniversary of the founding of the Communist Youth League to look at, you know, the, the, the question of youth in the last 100 years. But, you know, it, starting in the 80s, there was um, young people starting to go uh, abroad. Uh, in, in mass numbers to study. Um, a lot of people actually stayed, you know, if they could, um, whether it's in the UK or Maybe the half, US. maybe half stayed. Huge numbers. So, especially since the, the trade war and then heightened, you know, with the pandemic situation, it's wakened a kind of a consciousness among young people around the US, around imperialism. And this is a generation of young people that have had the opportunity or have gone to the US to study or somewhere in the West to study. They've learned English or other languages and have actually chosen to go back to China. Yeah. And you're seeing that in mass numbers. And I think that says a lot about this kind of state of development of China and also a sort of maybe a kind of confidence that is being built around young people and saying, oh, we've actually gone out and seen the world. We've learned the languages. We've lived in these countries and actually, you know, China has a lot of things that we want to offer. And I think that actually is an interesting shift uh, especially in the last decades. So in terms of an understanding, there's probably, an, there's never been before this amount of understanding of the West because people have actually lived, studied, and know the languages in previous generations they didn't have the access to. Mm -hmm. So I think looking at the young generation, especially those born after the 90s, is pretty interesting to see. In line with that, and just a follow-up question, then we'll come back to Deng Xing News. Obviously, Chinese people are aware of a growing antagonism between People's Republic of China and the United States. The anti-China propaganda is very obvious, is very observable. You know, 20 years ago, maybe there was more of a romanticization about the United States. I did a study comparing how the language of the media was towards China in 2002 compared to like last year. It's pretty stark. Mm -hmm. I mean, there wasn't this, you know, constant hostility and anger and hatred towards China. And if anything, there was a kind of a sense that China's coming into our camp. Mm -hmm. And I would think that Chinese people at that time, especially those who were coming to the United States, having the opportunity to study here or work here or stay here, they might have thought, yeah, okay. But now that the climate has changed, is the consciousness of young people and older people, for instance, feeling like 
wait, we're getting the raw end of the deal. This is the United States trying to humiliate us. In other words, is there kind of a sense of, not like a perverse nationalism, but a sort of a sense that this is going to be a struggle and we have to stand up? You know, I think I'll give one example, and I think it speaks a lot to the kind of climate. Last year, the Chinese film industry has been really booming. In fact, last couple of years has surpassed Hollywood. And why I'm bringing this up is the film that was the most watched last year, the highest blockbuster hit, and became the highest grossing film of all time in Chinese film history, was called The Battle of Lake Changjing, which is about the war in Korea. And I think this is interesting because, especially after the rapprochement, it was very rarely or intentionally sort of, you know, the question of anti-U.S. imperialism, especially what the war in Korea represented. You know, in Chinese, it's actually called, it's not called the Korean War, it's called the war to resist U.S. aggression and aid Korea, you know? It has a very clear understanding around internationalism, around U.S. imperialism. And since the rapprochement era, that kind of anti-imperialism or that kind of narrative or around the Korean War was kind of, you know, not silenced, but at least not mentioned because this was not the time, you know, it was a moment of rapprochement to build friendship with the U.S. and also develop rapidly the productive forces and everything that China needed to do to get to this stage. So I think it's very interesting and it's not a coincidence that last year was a huge blockbuster, several hundred million dollars spent on this, a three-hour epic and was the most watched film of all time in Chinese history. There is a sense around a strengthening of the Chinese society and people and confidence in the nation, but there's also a sense of, oh wow, there's what's happening in the aggression of the U.S. is part of a longer history of anti-imperialism. There's a kind of linkage, especially with young people, to look back into the, you know, May 4th, 1919 movement and link this history. Like, actually, you won't, you won't be able to see it, but my phone cover is, you know, of May 4th, 1919, the kind of New Youth magazine, which was one of the first Marxist magazines that came out of that era. There's like, there's a lot of this stuff being sold because young people are interested in a history of anti-imperialism and connecting what is happening now to then. So I think if, in some ways, a roundabout way to answer your question about the, the climate and the, the sense of the people. Let me just, uh, as we start to wind up here, ask you, you were born in Hong Kong, and you, you were also grew up in Canada. So you didn't grow up in China. You're not a citizen of the People's Republic of China, but you're there with a multinational group of researchers. Was there something that in the last two years, that there's some takeaway? What was the biggest surprise for you in terms of what you expected and what you've experienced? I mean, actually, just as a little correction, I was born in Hong Kong when it was still a British colony after 150 years. So actually, I am actually a citizen of the... Oh, you are a citizen. Yeah, of course, because Hong Kong is part of China. One country, two systems. <laughs> but I think, I mean, in, in some ways, I'm talking about a youth. I'm not the post-90s generation, but I would say my own experience is part of this, you know, new, you know, reconnecting with a longer Chinese historical project and identifying as a Chinese person, even having this migrational history. And also, I think the history, this... When looking at the history of imperialism, and Hong Kong is very much a product, was seeded in the Opium Wars, uh, experienced 150 years of colonialism, and a lot of the, the turmoil and, and difficulties that have been experienced in Hong Kong has very much directing as a living legacy of that. And I, I feel like I participate in that, that mm. kind of wave, you know, and that's real. But with that being said, I think one of the things that we really learned, and 
in doing this project is how much there is to offer to learn from China. It's both its um, you know achievements, but also some of the contradictions because there's a lot to offer. It's a I keep going back to the you know history of the eradicating extreme poverty. It's almost an impossible feat for humankind, and for us, it's a grouping of people that are predominantly from Latin America and Africa and the global South in general. These are lessons that are essential for the you know anyone who's interested in people's you know betterment of the mm -hmm. people's lives. And so, in some ways, it's not just to sort of challenge the Western media or media misinformation. It's also an opportunity to bridge and bring understanding for for countries like Brazil or South Africa that gain a lot to learn from the achievements from a country that was, you know, in 1949 was the 11th poorest country by GDP per capita terms. In 1949, that's in living memory of my grandparents. So I think that yeah. says a lot. Yeah. And. And at the time of the Chinese Revolution, a, a million, perhaps a million Chinese people starved to death every year. And all of that was ended even in the first decade after the revolution. But you wrote a pamphlet about the eradication of extreme poverty. 850 million people lifted out of extreme poverty, perhaps the greatest anti-poverty program in the history of the human race, an achievement for all of us, whether you're Chinese or Brazilian or in the Congo or in the United States, people should be celebrating the eradication of extreme poverty. I want to just ask you as we do wrap up, what's the name of the pamphlet or book and how can people find it? And then finally, how can people find Deng Cheng News? Sure. So the study was done uh, by Tricontinental. I'm also a researcher with Tricontinental, the Institute for Social Research. So you can find it at thetricontinental.org. And for Dongsheng, it's dongshengnews.org. And we're on Instagram, we're on Twitter. And Twitter, we have Spanish, Portuguese, and English. We have it on our website. And we also have a Telegram channel where we try to send a little bit more active, you know, day-to-day -day news that don't necessarily make it into the weekly digest. And you do have a newsletter about China and Africa, correct? Yeah, that's that's right. So we, we started with a, a newsletter, but soon it's actually going to, this could be a little promo for it. We're going to be We're going to learn something new about yeah, what's coming. It's not yet launched, but it's going to be called The Crane, the China-Africa podcast. And so it's a couple of researchers based in South Africa and Zambia who will be co-hosting the program because, of course, the China-Africa relation is something that's of interest for all of us, but what is it from an African perspective? Uh, and so for us, The Crane is very symbolic in terms of friendship, in terms of bird, but also thinking about the necessities of, of development for the African continent. Things Check, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. 